0: everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock, your host for the fifth episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to this program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. So today, we're going to veer a little bit away from the traditional parenting topics. I mean, not really, maybe not, maybe not really. We are talking about education which uh, <laughs> seems to be the number one thing on parents' minds these days, so maybe it is fitting. It's certainly the only thing I talk about with other moms. My husband is really tired of talking about education, um, but it's certainly on the forefront of my mind. Um, just to give you all a little update on the education front, at least in, you know, obviously my own home, um, and, and you'll, <laughs> after I say, after I After I explain this, you'll probably understand why I'm so obsessed with it. Um, I've decided to conduct my own experiment uh, experiment in my house. I pulled two children out of my local public school system because I'm so unhappy with it. And again, I don't want to get too far into that because that is a whole nother podcast. Um, But... I pulled two of them out to the, the two oldest out, and one is now going to be homeschooled. So that means I, <laughs> the poor kid, I will be teaching him. And then one is in an online Catholic school, which I'm, I'm actually very excited about. And then one is still in the public school. And it, and the reason is, is because he's got one more year of elementary school. He loves his school. And I, I, I actually don't hate that school. So we're going to let him sort of finish up there. Um, so it's really interesting, though, to consider the fact that I have kids and every kind of school system. I am homeschooling. I have a private parochial school and I have a public school. And so what I've decided to do is uh, every evening I write just a couple sentences about how the day went and if something happened or if something was frustrating. And so it's been five days and I've got a you know page <laughs> of notes. And, you know, I know it's early days, but holy cow, <laughs> let's just say the public school is not winning hearts and minds here. Okay, we've had major computer problems. I don't, it's funny, because I I wrote two of the teachers and I used this reference. I said, um, the audio is so bad on his school-issued computer that you guys sound like Max Hedrum. And then it occurred to me, I mean, these guys are, I think they're millennials. So I realized they probably don't know who Max Hedrum is. But if you are of a certain age, you probably do remember. And he had this, sort of he would skip so he'd be uh, 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 and you'd have this sort of skipping in the audio and so that is what my child listened to to for for two full days um it is just six solid hours on the computer there's very few breaks there's very little time off the computer so it's it's not been great um whereas the other schools obviously homeschooling there's no computer and then um with my child's uh, catholic school it's a lot of projects that are not computer-based so we're very happy with that um So I want to pivot to the topic of how public schools in the country are are teaching American history. That is specifically what we're going to be talking about on this podcast. Um, And this has become a very controversial topic lately. Um, You know, again, if you have very young children, this might might not be something you're really focusing on. Obviously, if your children have left the school system, you're not thinking about it. But if you have middle school children or high school students, this might be something you're aware of. And if not, you should be paying attention to this. Um, Even President Trump is talking about this. President Trump said last month. That schools that teach an alternative version of history, and what he means by that is sort of a negative version—the version that basically says America is a bad country. It's inherently bad. Its foundation is bad. It was it was founded on bad principles. It was founded on slavery. All of these things, um, which is which is actually captured in a brand new curriculum that we will talk about later. Um, Trump said those schools might lose federal funding. Um, and we'll talk about that too um, with our guests. The project the, the 1619 uh, project is based on the premise that American history began in 1619, um, which is the first, which is the year when African slaves first arrived in Virginia, basically first arrived in the United States. It wasn't the United States at that point, it was colonies. Um, and the 1619 Project, again, this is a, a series of stories and essays and, and, and articles in the New York Times. It says that everything following this, okay, everything from the Declaration of Independence to, um, you know, Boston Tea Party, everything should be viewed through this lens of slavery. Um, and this is an alternative history. And again, I'm going to talk more about that with my guests, but it is very dangerous. I think to be teaching kids this, not as, you know, sort of historical fiction or an alternative history, but, as, but as American history, um, this to me is, is very dangerous. And I, and most people agree, most historians agree, most sort of, um, scholars on the subject uh, on, on American history, they agree, um, that it is, it is a really an unfortunate, um, turn of events. Um, We're seeing, though, this even pop up in the presidential race. Um, uh, (laughs) I want to play this clip here of Biden saying that Thomas Edison didn't invite the light bulb. Uh, That's not actually true. Let's play that clip. We got to For example, why in God's name don't we teach history in history classes? A black man invented the light bulb, not a white
1: guy named Edison.
0: Okay. Okay, so that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the site of the recent police shooting of Jake Jacob Blake, and he was addressing the way in which black Americans are stripped from American history. He says they aren't discussed in schools. And you know, we can have a conversation about that. We can discuss the way in which black Americans and their contributions to society have, have been discussed. I, I think that's totally fair. But suggesting that Thomas Edison didn't invite the light invent the light bulb is crazy. That is, of course, false. And who he was talking about, the black man who he said did invent the light bulb, he made it better. He took Edison's invention and he made it better. And that is wonderful. And he definitely deserves accolades for that. But he did not invent the light bulb. That is just silly. And I, you know, Biden wants to turn that into a race thing. But, (laughs) you know, People who invent things usually get the sort of headlines, and then the people who improve on it, right, don't. That's just the way it is. I mean, there are, you know, people invented the vacuum cleaner, uh, um, someone invented the vacuum cleaner, and you hear about him, but you don't hear about the, you know, the 50,000 people who followed who, who improved on the vacuum cleaner. This is just, this is just the way it works. Um, so to turn those kinds of things into a race issue is, is, um, is pretty annoying. So to talk about this whole big mess of an issue, how schools are teaching history, the 1619 Project, Biden being a total weirdo, I have two guests today to talk about it. That's right, two guests. I feel very special. The dynamic duo, the Mr. and Mrs. Smith of the policy world, the heart-to-heart without the murders of the think tank world, a modern-day Nick and Nora trying to figure out what in the hell is wrong in America today, Inez and Jarrett Statman, Welcome, guys.
1: <laughs> Hi, thanks for having us. Thank I've been you. laughing my way through that intro. <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, I mean every bit of it because you guys are quite the dynamic duo and doing so much good for the country. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, So I'm going to bore you, but I'm going to tantalize my listeners with your official bios. So if you just hold on a sec, let me read these. And I think these are important because you guys are so impressive. Um, Inez works with me at IWF. Um, She's our head scholar on all things education and has worked in education policy for nearly a decade. And Inez has authored numerous long form, complicated, wonky policy papers that nobody reads except Jarrett and her mother. But thankfully, she's also written numerous articles for magazines and newspapers that people do read. So that's good. She's all over TV and she's frequent and she frequently testifies in in state legislatures across the country. Her handsome and gallant husband, Jarrett, is the is a contributor to the Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast, which please don't listen to because it's my competition. He is also the author of the new book, The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past that book you should definitely purchase. Right now, right now, pause the podcast and get on Amazon and buy that. That is an excellent book. Thank you both for joining me.
2: Now, thank you very much for for having both of us on.
0: (laughs) Um, Yes, this is very exciting. Um, So let's see, let's start off. You know, I talked about, you know, what we're seeing in education, um, what, especially when it comes to American history, some really concerning things. I certainly have seen it. Myself with my own kids. Um, And I know you have both written about the 1619 project, which I think it's really important that people understand just what that's all about. And as, and again, I know you both have written about it. So, Jarrett, please interject or add on. But, and as maybe you could give the listeners a quick overview, I tried not to do that too much in my introduction because I wanted you to really. Sort of define it, talk about it a little bit, and uh, and then also, what is the 1619 Project's curriculum, uh, which is is certainly attached, and why we're so concerned about its influence in schools.
1: Right. Um, well, the 1619 Project is a series of essays published by the New York Times, headed up by uh, Hannah Nicole Jones, who um, is employed over there at The Gray Lady, and and this. It came under fire from all corners of the political spectrum, from historians, and maybe Jarrett can talk a little bit about that in a minute, uh, for being just factually inaccurate. But, but the narrative is this. The United States was not really founded in 1776 on, on the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, principles of liberty and equality between men. Uh, it was actually founded in 1619 when the first African slave uh, was sold onto our shores, uh, and and that that central thesis um, I think very much informs the the project as a whole, um, and and I think that the real point is to. To remove any pride that Americans might have in their in their systems, in the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, in our way of life, um, it's to undermine that, and then to to say that it's it's not that human beings are fallible, and and um, that you know America has had its black marks in our own history, certainly slavery um, and Jim Crow and discrimination, just as every society in the history of the world has had. But that, in fact, these black marks form the the cornerstone, the root of our system. And therefore, we can never move beyond them. We can never be in their words, quote unquote, anti-racist unless we take direct aim at the American system, the American governance um, system and, and the way of life that all of us, you know, used to, to, to love. Um, and, and so that's why I think it's such a dangerous basis uh, to be then turned into a curriculum um, to be fed into America's high schools and middle schools. So uh, we we know for sure that 4,500 schools have already adopted uh, the 1619 wow. curriculum, but it's probably much higher than that because those Forty, numbers are wait, several months so old wait, already. It,
0: 40, so it's, it's so interesting. So I was just writing down an uh, an additional question is where it's been deployed. So it has already it is already being used and you said 4500 high is it high schools high schools obviously
1: high schools mostly also middle schools um, so but but it's already been deployed in at least that many schools. That is that is a, almost certainly a lowball number uh, because that, that was the number uh, that was uh, investigated before the current round of riots uh, and protests that we've seen. So it's it's more than likely that many schools and school districts have adopted this as a response right. to those riots. So this is a, definitely a lowball number. It's unfortunately a number is probably much higher than that. I do want to emphasize that 1619, while it, it sort of exploded into the news and it got a Pulitzer Prize and, and right. got all of the, you know, sort of um, the the shiny medals that go along uh, with the imprimatur of, of the education establishment. Right. Uh, It got all that attention, but it's I I view it very much as a capstone rather than something very new that's being introduced into our schools, because Howard Zinn's The People's History of America, which, of course, Howard Zinn was a communist, um, a card carrying communist, not he he didn't actually deny being a communist. that, that book has been among the most popular textbooks in, in American high schools for a long time. And even more, some of the more mainstream textbooks about American history, I, I would say, have long overemphasized America's sins and downplayed uh, her greatness. So I, I see this very much as the logical consequence of a trend that started um, at minimum a couple decades ago, but in, in academia and universities well before that.
0: You know, one thing I'd like to I feel like I have so many follow up questions from that and it's going to be hard for me not to um, veer off into a million tangents here. But I do want and, and, and Jarrett, maybe you can cover this too. talk to me about the criticism it has gotten. And this is significant because, you know, many times something happens in a school and you have, you know, the predictable the predictable figures on the right who are complaining but in this case, this is quite different. You have widespread criticism of this curriculum. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I think one of the the, the serious problems with the 1619 Project period is is not just, I think, the ideolo- the ideology behind it, which is to not just undermine America's pride and I think in a lot of its history, but also undermine some of the central ideas, mm-hmm. which I think it's created a lot of distortions about. I mean, including. Uh, several essays attacking capitalism as essentially inherently connected to the institution of slavery. Uh, but, but beyond that, I think there, there are a lot of direct criticisms of the actual history involved, and I think there have been a, a number of important scholars, uh, many of whom are I would consider on the left. I mean, we've right. had people like Gordon Wood, one of the most famous American history h- historians. Uh, who's come out and been critical of the project, it, it, it criticized many of its inaccuracies. James McPherson, who's written, I think, probably the greatest book on the, the American Civil War. Uh, I, there are countless of like Sean Wilentz, another prominent liberal historian. I mean, he's been an outspoken uh, Bill Clinton supporter in the past, has come out and criticized the specific claims that have been made in many of these articles. And some of them have been, I think, wild and fantastic, including uh, Hannah Nicole Jones in her lead essay as part of this project said that the founding fathers fought the American Revolution to protect uh, and further slavery, uh, yeah. which frankly, there's there's no evidence of whatsoever. It's based on an incredible distortion has been yeah. roundly condemned, I think, by serious scholars, I mean, uh, across yeah. the spectrum. Yeah,
0: it's interesting too that, you know, you have, like you said, you mentioned some of those prominent historians, um, you know, and you have just, uh, very prominent figures in general. I mean John McWhorter, Clarence Page, there have been people I'm, I think I'm correct about Clarence Page, who's come out to criticize this curricula or rather the 1618 project. is that is that right? Was he one of the vocal critics of it?
2: He, he has in fact, he's been a part of the 1776 uh, project uh, by Robert Woodson, who's a, a prominent black educator. That's right who has been highly critical of the ethos of the 1619 Project, has put together, I think, an excellent series of essays that in many ways counter, I think, a lot of the misinformation of 1619. I highly suggest uh, that people check that out. They're coming up with a lot of materials that I think are great, uh, especially for students. I mean, frankly, for all Americans who are concerned about this, right. uh, I think correcting a lot of the errors. And Clarence Page w- was a part of this group. And I think that's, that's great. That's remarkably important at this time to counter disinformation with information for people. Because I think part of the problem is, especially for a lot of parents, students around the country, you know, they hear this and they say, well, this is the backing of a Pulitzer Prize. This thing has been highly celebrated. Well, you know, it must be true, right? I mean, they wouldn't hand a Pulitzer Prize to somebody who's come up with something that's uh, wildly wrong or inaccurate. But unfortunately, that's not the case. I think the case has been that there are enormous historical inaccuracies with the project. Uh, It's incredible that it's been given the kind of accolades it has been. And frankly, you know, a lot of the, the, the lead architects of this project were not themselves historians or experts in the matter. Many of them were journalists, and they've come under criticism from a lot of experts in these different fields. So whether you disagree with the ultimate ethos of the 1619 or, I think, just as importantly, disagree with the, the simple facts uh, of the project, I think both of those things are incredibly important, especially for, for parents of— uh, you know, students who are, you know, many of them are going back to school, things like this. Right. They're going to encounter a lot of stuff in their classrooms.
1: Well, I just I I feel like, can I, sure. can I just add to that? Um, we've, we're seeing for the last couple decades a very interesting divergence um, or or correlation, depending on which way you want to look at it. I mean, it, it's no secret that American civic knowledge is has been trending downward for the last few decades um, right. to the point where, for example, uh, the the citizenship cast that my own parents and millions of others uh, took to to become American naturalized American citizens. Which, if anybody has actually read it, you know, you can read through yeah. it online. It's it's basic stuff. You know, yeah. it's what's the how many years is a senator's term? You know, right? Uh, what are the three branches of the federal government? Like real real basic civic knowledge. Um, and and indeed, past generations of Americans pass that at fairly high rates. So, for example, baby boomers pass that test at about a 77 or 80 percent rate. Um, right. But the my generation, the millennials, and then the, the generation that's coming after us, the Gen Z, um, fewer than one in five uh, Americans no. under the age of 40 can pass this very basic civic test. So what we're seeing is that younger Americans are not being taught any of the actual civic facts about this right. country or its history. Right. But what they are being taught and what shows up in poll numbers is you see anywhere from half to two-thirds of millennials, millennials and Gen Zers saying that they think this country is inherently racist and yes. sexist. What they're yes. being taught is that ideology instead of any of the actual civic facts about our country.
0: Right, exactly. Well, it's one, one, one other interesting thing, and it connects to the just – i mean the it, the jaw-dropping stupidity of the of this project being turned into a curriculum is that in reaction to the criticism and i i think it's important to say that it is criticism from largely people on the left of this and and very respected historians you know who may not identify necessarily as being on the left but i mean this is you have very, very respected historians, and then you know, and then you know, scholars of various sorts on on the left have criticized this project. And in reaction, Hannah, B, Han, is it Hannah H. Joe, Hannah B. Jones, Hannah B. Jones,
1: Hannah Nicole um, Jones, I think. Oh,
0: Hannah Nicole Jones. Hannah, that's right. Um, she said, "Well, <laughs> it's not actually history." I don't remember the exact quote. Maybe one of you knew know this, but didn't she sort of, sort of quickly. Um, make excuses for the project by saying that well, it's 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 like it's like um, historical fiction, isn't that correct?
2: Yeah, she did. She did this on Twitter. In fact, she's had a number of statements on Twitter that um, have been very peculiar and odd. Uh, in <laughs> fact, and one of the things that I think is quite remarkable, especially given that she's been given so much attention and accolades, is how nasty and aggressive she's been to anybody who. Frankly, even makes very much good faith uh, has questioned some of the facts of her project. Yeah. She's attacked people personally. She's uh, made faces at people. Literally made faces uh, at somebody on Twitter. Uh, you know, very strange behavior for somebody who's you know treated with a great deal of seriousness, uh, right. especially when it comes to educating the next generation of Americans. I think that's what's really you know adds to how stunning this is and how ubiquitous some of the lessons from 1619 are. Are suddenly becoming in our culture, uh, it's amazing the kind of weight given to something that you know, has had so many inaccuracies, where the lead architect has had so many problems and issues and, and okay. been unwilling and incapable of dealing with any kind of criticism. Uh, it really is an amazing thing.
1: Okay. So we have, we have been reversing her name. It's Nicole Hannah-Jones. Oh, uh, thank you. And, and what she said um, is that the 1619 project is not a history. I've always said that the 1619 project is not a history. it is a work of journalism that explicitly seeks to challenge the national narrative and therefore the national memory. I'm not sure how inaccuracies in a piece of journalism is an improvement over inaccuracies in a history um, but nevertheless those, those are her words
0: well it is I, I really do think it is sort of historical fiction you know it's like man in the high tower, right it's you know, it's it's one of these you know what if kind of stories, and and I think it is. I, I think the the project itself is interesting. I think examining the year of sixteen nineteen. I think I think examining, you know, s- slaves coming into the you know into the colonies at that point. I think that all of these things are worth examining, but to entirely change um, the sort of foundational beliefs of our country is, uh, is extreme. And, 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 and as you say, I'm glad, and as you guys have very clearly stated, I'm glad that that it is getting pushed back, but do you, but why, why is this? And maybe you guys, (laughs) two things I'm asking why about, first of all, you have the, the the most brilliant historical scholars, you have all this criticism of it, and then you have 4,500 schools deploying this. I mean, it seems to me when Hannah, sorry, Nicole, Hannah-Jones says, um, you know, it's, it's basically uh, historical fiction. I mean, that alone should tell schools. I mean, is it just because school publics, largely public schools have become so politicized and they like this revisionist history? They like this. Is it just convenient to deploy this? I don't really understand why schools are doing this. That, that does really show my, how naive I am. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of new to this educational stuff. And as you are amazing and know all the ins and outs of it, but I'm I'm still kind of this. I feel like I'm this babe that has come out and been like, "Wow, gosh, you know, why would why would schools adopt a uh, a curriculum like this?"
1: Well, I I think it does have to do with the underlying ideology, and and as I said, I really do view this as an inevitable consequence and an inevitable radicalism from the underlying assumptions that I think have been part of k-12 education for decades um and and look the the root of this as always um comes from the universities it comes from academia it comes from critical race theory it comes from all of the critical theories um and those departments and it it took a few decades uh, from the late 1960s for those kinds of ideas to to become mainstream enough that they were being taught in schools of education, they were being taught to to teachers. They were being taught during teacher trainings. I don't know um, if if your listeners are following uh, Christopher Rufo. He has done some yes. amazing work on these kinds of critical race theory trainings that have been happening, you know, for years in the federal government. Well, imagine that that's not the only place that it happens. We know it happens in Fortune five hundred companies, but it's also been happening in in teacher trainings forever. Right. Um, right. So. the the entire educational establishment, which is not to say that every teacher agrees with this, it's absolutely not the case, but the entire weight of the educational establishment from the unions to school administrators to teacher trainings, right, the the entire wheels of the system have been going in this direction for a long time. And therefore, um, this, this kind of pushback where you have the author of this project saying it is not a history and yet is being adapted as history curriculum and history uh, supplementary materials in schools. Well, it's, it's not really that big a step from what they were teaching before. Um, and, and again, as, as I said a minute ago, we're, we've, we can see the results of that over the last two decades just by looking at generational polls, how much less young Americans know about their country and how much more they seem to despise it.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I if I can kind of follow of up on that a little bit, I mean, I, this is to a certain extent a trickle down ideology from America's elite. This has been going on for a long time. When Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States came out in 1980, yeah. it was it was at the just like the 1619 Project. It's a lot of serious scholars from the left, right, you name it. Tore it apart, but what he was doing was he believed he was on a, a moral crusade for his ideology, which was communism. Uh, I think that had enormous effect, especially as a lot of high school teachers adopted his works. I think, I mean, you can just check out Amazon right now. .com right now. It's one of the most, you know, highly yeah. sold books. Uh, and it's had a huge, enormous impact on generations of Americans. I mean, not yeah. just millennials, Gen Z, and, and the like. I mean, I think this has been really glommed onto as not just a part of how people see history but how they see you know their moral assessment of history as well. I think it's had uh, an incredible impact. I mean, I think that recent Fox News poll that showed that as as far as how Americans view the founding fathers, 77% say they're heroes compared to a, a tiny percent say uh, villains. But when you look at the the millennial generation younger, it's nearly split. I think something like 39% said heroes uh, 32% said villains. Uh, you know, that's that's something dramatic. Of course, there's a huge number of people who, you know, haven't decided the matter. And I think those are the people, you know, hopefully that are persuadable. But unfortunately, because there are so many now gaps in civics education, that kind of essential informed patriotism that was so important throughout this country's history, you know, the creation of, of, of a republic, uh, that's so lacking that I don't think a lot of students even have, the knowledge to defend themselves from a lot of the claims that are made by people who have a lot of radical intent. And I think that is one of the big problems. And one of the things that's really driving this movement is that there's a lot of misinformation or just lack of information out there. We just simply aren't. Right. Uh, we don't have the anesthesia to this that we would have had in my parents' generation that might have existed at that time. I think that's really created the crisis we have today.
0: You know, I, I, I want to Jared, I actually want to talk a little bit more about your book, but I but before we move on from the 1619 um, and sort of the schools, I, I want to ask one last question. And I have a feeling that Inez is yet again going to um, uh, rain on my parade and and tell me I shouldn't get excited. But I think a lot of people are um, excited about President Trump, who, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was maybe last week, maybe two weeks ago. Anyway, he said... You know, that schools that teach an alternative version of American history, you know, which, of course, is like the 1619 uh, curriculum, critical race theory, that kind of stuff. He said that might lose federal funding. But I, I have a feeling you don't think that's that that's going to solve this problem. Right.
1: Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to solve this problem, but I, I will say a word in, in favor and praise before I, I critique the actual <laughs> policy, which is, uh, you know, President Trump, I think, has distinguished himself from other Republicans in a recent memory, uh, by understanding that the culture war matters, yep. it, it is of utmost importance what our future citizens are learning, um, and that's that's been a regrettable blind spot, I think, for the right and for Republicans for a very long time. And I think it, it is the reason, the number one reason, we find ourselves in the situation that we find ourselves today. Um, and so, so I, I would say, like the the intent there is is important because it it makes him different from the way that Republicans have traditionally thought about some of these issues. And I think that that's a critical shift if, you know, yeah. any semblance of the the country that conservatives are trying to quote unquote, conserve uh, is is going going to be conserved and is going to, you know, be there for our children and our grandchildren. Um, so so that that's the the very important praise. In terms of actual policy, uh, there, there's a couple reasons why this makes me nervous for one I mean the federal government has a terrible track record of interfering uh, with curriculum the last iteration of this we saw was the common core um, and and there was a huge backlash against that and 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 in some ways this that was less specific and on less uh, controversial topics so um, but I, I the second reason that I just don't think it's going to be particularly effective is is because of what we were talking about earlier, how the entire system is sort of geared uh, towards leftist narratives. Yeah, and and I think we can we can learn here uh, from the experience of some of the red states that, that passed uh, these great historical curriculums. Like for example, uh, the state of Texas revised its educational standards, its social studies standards in 2010, uh, and and I read through those standards. They they were fantastic. They were balanced. They were fair. They covered all of America's, you know, sins, but they also they also covered in great detail um, the founding and and the great things that that uh, sprung from 1776 through to today. So I thought it was a fantastic, you know, set of standards for social studies. Yet and, another and reason yet to move to Texas. And and yet we're still not seeing that that vision really taught even in Texas schools, because, you know, you can pass a law that says all fourth graders have got to learn about George Washington. But once you pass that through the system. Right. um, It's going to end up being George Washington was a slave owner. Uh, and you shouldn't respect him. And so that's why I, I, I don't think these kinds of sort of top down mandates are particularly effective, because once they get filtered through the system, you know, it ends up with the same sort of leftist narrative. Whereas in my mind, the most important thing that we can do is to actually, you know, challenge that system, um, to break that monopoly, to give families the chance to make their voices heard, um, especially while I think the majority of school-age parents are still Gen X. Uh, yeah. I think that's yeah. incredibly important to give families that freedom through school choice, through education savings accounts, through encouraging homeschooling, not only for the percentage of, of families who are actually going to take advantage of those options, um, but also to shift the, um, I think, just the, the underlying polarity of incentives within the education system. And I, I know, Julie, you have uh, so many unfortunate stories, personal stories of <laughs> of of that polarity. Yourself, but yeah. the, the current system really doesn't have any reason to value the voices of parents over sort of these leftist narratives that are are coming through from the schools of education, yeah. from teacher yeah. trainings, you know, from universities. There's no reason for them to respect parents' voices over those kinds of 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 narratives. And and so that's that's I think what we really have to change, rather than trying some of these top down you know, sort of solutions that I, I think we've actually tried on the state level and have not been enormously successful.
0: Well, as I mentioned, you know, I'm of I've been writing about Ed and but very, very different from you. And I've always made this distinction that my when I write about Ed, it's very much personal essays. I'm not I don't get deep into the policy because I don't know necessarily the policy, but I talk from from what it's like to be a parent in the public schools. And they are painful to write. They are truly, you know, tough things that I have faced as a parent being maligned and ignored and treated with such deep disrespect from, from, and I, I, you know, to be honest with you, the least of the problem in my case have have been the teachers. It's been much more the administration, but we have had some issues and even we, we actually have had some good luck too, in that we've had some, some truly good teachers, which I think, boy, you know, thank goodness because you know my situation and it, It would have been even, you know, (laughs) I I, I often think it couldn't get much worse, but it could have if we hadn't had um, those those good teachers. But it was interesting to me. It's been a real wake up call as I've been writing those pieces. And again, very, very sort of personal essays about what I've experienced. And recently I I wrote a piece that a lot of public school for a publication that a lot of public school teachers read. And boy, I'm getting some heat on Twitter because they read my piece. They've read these pieces where, you know, if you if you. If you publish something in National Review, or if you publish publish something in the Federalist, I mean, I you know, I'm I'm sure there's some public school teachers, but this is an actually like a almost like an education trade magazine, you know, and, um, and the things that I was seeing over the last couple of weeks, the comments on Twitter, you know, that teaching is political, that you have to get political, that you can't keep politics out of the question. One guy, um, said <laughs> I couldn't believe this, you know, he says I teach literature and it's impossible to find thing, you know, books that aren't political. I mean, there are 32 million books in the Library of Congress. Like, that's absurd, right? Lassie, which my middle son is now reading. I mean, that's not political, right? (laughs) You can find, you know, and, you know, and I know it gets, maybe it gets harder in in high school, but I don't even agree with that. I think there's plenty of books that, you know, you can assign kids. So it's been a real, real wake up call. Um, And I think you're right. In terms of, it doesn't matter how many sort of highline policies or curriculums or we come up with. The teachers, you know, in the classroom are, you know, many of them are just are just very political and want to push a political agenda. So it's much harder to to fix that.
1: Yeah, um, I, I definitely think it's it's not. Uh, it is some teachers, but when I say that the entire system wants yeah. to translate these things, it's it's definitely not just teachers, right? It's it's as i said it's administrators it's principals it's it's the district office um, and then it's it's curriculum experts it's all the the massive consultants it's it, it and it really does underline how much educating has become sort of a profession rather than a calling um, and and we can talk for <laughs> i i think it would be a too big a digression but we can talk <laughs> about how the progressive era really you know cemented that that idea about like that Expertise that one could could um, you know govern, for example, the country through pure neutral, apolitical, scientific expertise. These folks think that you know teaching is is an expertise, which it certainly um, you know educators who have been doing it for years. They certainly learn things and and improve upon their teaching techniques. But let's not forget, you know, parents have been teaching their children and have been their primary. Uh, their children's primary teachers for hundreds of years uh and and so we have completely flipped in my view the the way we think about these things compared to how they ought to be it ought to be that the parent is the primary teacher and the director of, of um, his or her child's education. And then the relationship is, okay, I hire you. I hire you tutor or teacher or school or, you know, pod director or, or um, you know, I, I purchase a curriculum for homeschooling. I'm farming out some piece of that yes. job um, to you. I'm entrusting you with it. I'm paying you well for it, but I'm entrusting you with this job of educating my child. And we just don't think about education increasingly in that way. And I think that's a great loss. And hopefully one of the silver linings, I think of of this very challenging year um, may be that a lot of parents rediscover uh, that they are able to direct their kids education that you don't need a phd or a master's in teaching or education uh, to be able to really impart some very important educational lessons to your children and not to 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 sacrifice that's that driver's seat position just because somebody throws a degree in your face or, or tells tells you that that they know better because that's just not the case
2: right right yeah if, and if i to if i could just Sure. One chime in one thing. I I think what Inez says is incredibly important, especially the parents active role in this. I mean, I know. Look, I mean, yes, I think a large part of our public school system is 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 working against you. It's the the system itself, I think, has become malignant. It's one of the reasons I support school choice. But, you know, parents are such, you know, the X factor there. I mean, for, for me, you know, my parents took me out of a public school at a very young age because of this very thing about patriotism and, and teaching American history, things like this, and I was very fortunate. My parents were not history PhDs, far from it. My father was a firefighter, my mother was a nurse, but you know, yeah. they cared about this country. They informed themselves and they helped me inform myself. And yeah. you know, sometimes yeah. even as a young person, when I disagree with my parents, those lessons still stuck, you know, they had me read about World War II, read about American history. And, you know, that's why, you know, you know, I developed the ideas I have today, you know, that is an X factor, even if all the schools and all the institutions let you down, you as a parent can still be that decisive factor in your child's life. You know, it's interesting,
0: uh, Jertz, here here you talk about, you know, well, actually here both of you talk about this, you, you know, when Inez talked about the how, you know, only one in five children can pass the civics test or have some semblance of civics knowledge. And then you talk about your own education and and what your parents gave you in terms of critical thinking. We have seen such a loss in critical thinking. And so I think about these kids who are at school, who get, who hear the 1619 curriculum, you know, and many of them aren't equipped to question because again, we're just, really not teaching that today, how to think critically, how to ask questions, how, you know, how to be skeptical about things. So it is a trap, you know, Jared, I want to just touch really quickly on your book because you talk about this in much broader terms beyond the school and in war, the war on history. I love that title, the conspiracy to rewrite America's past. I love the book. I, I hope people go out and read the book. I think it is it I think the publishing of this book right now is a perfect time. And I really think I think all parents, frankly, should read this book. but i but I want but I want to get your sense of like what what do they want to rewrite it to? What do they want it to look like?
2: Yeah, I think you know that that was one of you know my primary motivations for writing this book is to, you know, help, you know, average Americans deal with a lot of the attacks that they hear on American history. I mean, starting, you know, with Christopher Columbus, you name it, you know, giving some ammunition to people to be able to you know defend American history. The thing that, frankly, we should have all been able to do from the beginning, that I think a lot of our schools have, have let us down, let this country down, especially in the light of we now have a radical movement that is dead set on Bearing American history, essentially, I mean, literally stripping it down in public places around right. this country. And, you know, I mean, we've seen such a, I think a radical, you know, slope. I mean, gosh, I mean, you know, a few years ago, people were talking about Confederate statues. Now we're talking about George Washington, right. Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, and, I, and frankly, I have to say, I I knew that this is, was ultimately right. where it was gonna go. I mean, seeing it happen all in one summer, I think is stunning, but if you listen to the arguments of many of those you know, who are inspired by, by people like Howard Zinn, who do believe in things like the 1619 Project, that's ultimately where it goes. They're not just targeting one part of what makes America or any single policy. They think America was ultimately rotten at its very root, that this is not just not an exceptional country, it's an exceptionally bad country. You know, that was always the message that came from Howard Zinn uh, in his ilk. And that those are the lessons that I think have seeped into every part of American culture. I mean, you know, one way or another, you know, that's the challenge that we face today. And I wrote my book to be a counterweight to that, to say that, you know what, going back, american history is not something that's perfect but it is very defensible this country is built on great things we've always been great uh since the foundation of the united states the seeds were planted uh long before america existed but you know 1776 was that remarkable moment that has led to the strength and success of the united states through its history uh and and frankly these are lessons that i mean a generation ago were no-brainers you know now we have to think about these. We have to think about them a lot uh, because it's challenged on a daily basis. and I do fear, especially as the United States you know we head into a world in which you know we have rising superpowers, we have challenges to America's strength. Do we still have the ultimate belief that we had in seventeen seventy six that America was built to be something special, was built to be something different? I think over time it's proven to be those things. But I think so many young Americans don't know that, and and they need that counterweight at this time uh, for the real fight that's going on in our culture, in our, our civilization. Is America ultimately a good and great country? Is it worth defending? You know, my obviously what I say is yes. You know, you can go down line by line defend what this country has been. I think it's important to put into context the failings of this country and the way that you know all people you know have failed, all people are flawed, but to but I think that that really highlights the the triumphs that this country has made over the last two plus centuries, uh, that I think are remarkable that have really I think no precedent in the history of this world, and I think that's again it's something that was i think almost universally understood by people of different political persuasions and you name it across american society a generation a few generations ago that's no longer the case and i think that really is the fight that we're having in 2020
0: you guys are just i, mean, I can i can't even i can't imagine what dinner conversation is at your house you guys are the most interesting <laughs> people i swear it's so i could listen to you all day and i will tell you this i will tell you, i will tell you i am now a new homeschooler for my oldest child. And we have completed our first week of homeschool. And, and as you'll be happy to hear, my child is still alive. Actually, I think he's smiling downstairs. He's down in the living room and he's happy and had a great week. And he's, um, he really loves, he, he actually told me last night, he likes his new teacher. So we have survived. And I will, I will tell you both that I, he is the war on history is on his list, his reading list. Um, uh, we will be reading that together. I've already read it, but he will be reading it next. And Inez, I may even make him sit through your long form policy wonky papers too. <laughs>
1: that that when would
0: he be misbehaved.
1: Misbehaved. unusual, but uh but you but you're the boss in your homeschool, so that's
0: right. That's right. Stand in that corner and finish <laughs> Inez's article. Um <laughs> I'm kidding. I love your articles. I love everything you do. But um, you know, I usually end this. The, first of all, this has been a great conversation, and I'm really glad you guys came on. And um, and I and and I think this is so so important. I can't wait to forward this out to a lot of folks. But I will tell you, I usually end the Bespoke Parenting Hour by telling some, some sort of horrifying story about what it was like to be a kid. You know, a hundred years ago when kids died quite easily, um, or something about you know child labor laws or you know you, you know kids in sweatshops. And um, but I thought it would be better to mention that we are actually recording this. So this will actually be, um, we will release this next week, but today is September 11th. And I thought it would be really interesting to hear kind of, you know, just a quick um, like story about where you guys were. I know you must've been very young. Um, I was younger, but I certainly wasn't living with my parents. And I, I thought it might be interesting to hear since it's a parenting podcast to hear what, as you know, when you were, you were probably still living with your parents, I would imagine. Um, and what it was like for you, if you could if you guys could just spend a few minutes on that topic.
1: Um, sure. Uh, and I, I, I would first say, I think this, this particular anniversary has hit a lot of us, um, particularly deeply um, given given the the crises, multiple crises that our, our country is experiencing now, uh, the, I can't recall another 9/11 anniversary where the memories were sh- as sharp, for, except for, except for perhaps, obviously, the first couple um, as as they were for me this year. But I, I was in eighth grade. It was obviously the beginning of the school year, September, um, and both Jared and I were on the West Coast, so because of the time difference. Um, sure. I, I watched the, the second plane hit. Um, I, I think I was shelving books in the library. That was my first period uh, oh, wow. sort of job. So I was shelving books and instead of shelving books, we ended up watching TV in every single class. And speaking of, of important things that a good teacher can do, um, one of my teachers, instead of teaching, nobody was teaching normal class. Everybody was just glued to the television Um, But one of our teachers had us journal uh, because she said, you know, you would you will want to have your memories of this day. Uh, You'll want to be able to look back. And um, I I do recall that my journal was extremely vengeful. I I I wanted to to take revenge on the people who had hurt America so badly. But, um, you know, it's it's been really interesting to see. To see nine eleven sort of transform from memory into past into the his into history, right? Yeah. Uh, and so for for even though uh, you say that we're spring chickens, right? We're we're not too too uh, too young right, spring right. chickens. We can clearly remember nine eleven. Right. Even even those let's say five and certainly ten years younger than us, um, they really can't. It's it's as yeah. Um, sort of imaginary to them as, as Pearl Harbor, which is perhaps a reminder of the importance of accurate history and storytelling yeah. uh, more than anything else, because otherwise we'll, we'll lose those memories and we'll lose the accuracy. And, and you know, one political side or the other will pick it up and, and run with it as part of a narrative rather than rather than an accurate memory of that day.
2: Yeah, and yeah, as is right, that I think it's up to, you know, our generation generations to keep the memory of you know this event alive it's obviously one of the most incredible things that's happened in, in American history uh something that you know I was a little older than as I was a freshman in high school obviously like many others the day remains incredibly vivid in my mind mm-hmm. and I was fairly, you know, politically savvy for somebody, you know, at that age and knew that, you know, the world was going to change after that day. And yeah. I had the same feeling that somebody else did. It was first the absolute horror of what was happening and then the anger about mm-hmm. the people who had done that to, to the country that I love very much. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, my father you know, was, was a firefighter. He was on urban search and rescue. I, you know, had thoughts, oh. maybe he's going to be deployed. He never right. ended up being deployed, but, you know, understanding, you know, also the sacrifice of the people, uh, that day who responded, it's still one of the most, uh, incredible parts of this is, you know, if war kind of brings out the best and worst of humanity, uh, I think we saw that on nine 11, uh, the, the amount of heroism that existed there was, was truly incredible. Um, and I think that's something that really struck me, uh, mixed with all those emotions of what had happened on that day. Uh, you know, nobody nobody who either was close to it or watched on the news or who, you know, uh, looked up in the sky and saw the planes roll gone. Nobody can really forget that. Um, and I think it's a part of you know, what this country is. And of course, you know, we, we have endured as a country. You know, everything that we cared about was under attack that day. The terrorist yep. attacked you know, they, they were very direct in what they were attacking. They were attacking, you know, American capitalism. They tried to attack the Pentagon, American military. They tried to attack the, the, the White House, the Capitol, the, you know, American democracy. Those are the things that were under siege that day. Everything that made us special and made, you know, the Islamists hate us and want to end us. And I, I you know, ultimately, you know, I believe that what America stands for uh, you know, has, as always, I think, will we'll stand those challenges. And it has withstood a lot of those challenges. I think the Islamist ideas that I think undergirded it will eventually be washed away through the sands of time. I think what America stands for will, will withstand that test as uh, something truly good and great. And, and I think that, you know, even though we are now nearly 20 years away from this event, uh, is something that we, we do need to all remember, that, that whole, you know, never forget, we should never forget, you know, it's so tied up with who we are. You know, when we think of our, even our national anthem, which in some ways is very much perfect for this, you know, it's about enduring in the face of incredible adversity. You know, we're on our back heels, but we're going to get back up again. You know, our flag is still there and it is still there. You know, the idea of America and what we are you know, survives through this, and it will again. Even the challenges that are incredible today, in some ways, you know, more comprehensive throughout our society. I think, you know, that's who Americans are. We will, we will, we will triumph over whatever challenge comes our way.
0: I I can't tell you how happy I am. To be honest with you, I I had not planned this out. I did a schedule of podcasts, and you guys sort of landed on this day. But I can't think of two better guests to come on and talk about. America, American history—a history, though we, there have been there. You know, we have our our history has uh, has pock We have sins, but uh, there is a lot to be proud of, um, and we are uh, the best country in the world, the freest country in the world. And I can't thank you enough for coming on and and talking about it, uh, talking about that, and sort of. Um, talking about how our country really is worth fighting for and uh, and reminding us of the rich history that I really hope young people in this country learn about and learn to appreciate. So thank you both so much for coming on.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Julie.
0: Thanks everyone for being here for another episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. If you enjoyed this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure that the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. If you haven't subscribed to the Bespoke Parenting Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, please do so so you won't miss an episode. Don't forget to share this episode and let your friends know that they can get bespoke episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.